6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his teaching on the book of 2 Kings, chapters 14 through 16. Well, we're in uh, 2 Kings. In the fifth session, we're going to cover uh, chapters 14 through 16 in this session. And uh, just by way of review, you may recall that 1 Kings took us through... Uh, a portion of both the kingdoms. Uh, we're in Second Kings, of course. The, the northern kingdom goes from bad to worse, and we're going to see it uh, uh, end tonight. Uh, it it uh, lasted for about two centuries. The uh, southern kingdom had some kings. Each one had about 20 kings, but the, and uh, the kings of the uh, northern kingdom went from bad to worse. But the, in the southern kingdom, about half of them weren't that bad, and there were several that were pretty good. So they have a little different history, a little longer history, but they ultimately go into captivity also. And we're going to be looking at the segment from Amaziah to Ahaz in the southern kingdom and from uh, Joash to uh, Pekah in the, in the northern kingdom. And uh, the northern kingdom um, had two kings that were very dominant. All of them were not that, it, all of them were bad in many respects, but both Jehu and Jeroboam. We'll talk a little bit about them as we go. But something else we haven't talked too much about, but we should recognize that there were prophets. Uh, God, in his desire that they repent and to try to avert judgment, sent one prophet after another. And uh, we uh, focused on Elijah and Elisha, of course, but there were others, and we're going to look closely at the last three. Uh, there are also a group of prophets uh, in the southern kingdom, we've seen four so far. There'll be four more coming later. But the ones I'm going to talk a little bit about will be the last three, Jonah, Amos, and Hosea, uh, as we get into that. But to summarize what, what they accomplished, looking ahead a few chapters, in Second Kings 17, it summarizes it for us, as they forsook all the commands of the Lord, their God, and made for themselves two idols, cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole, and they bowed down to all the starry hosts, and they worshipped Baal. And they sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire, and they practiced divination and sorcery, and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. I've ex- just excerpted a few a few of these verses. We're going to see the same echo all the way through the history of especially the northern kingdom, despite God's continued patient efforts of sending them one, one after the other uh, warnings through the prophets, but they didn't listen. They continued to offend him by their conduct. So let's get into it. Let's go to Second uh, Kings 14. But let's start our, uh, by taking a look at the southern kingdom. We're going to talk about the southern kingdom. So Second Kings 14, starting off in verse 1. In the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, king of Israel, reigned Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah. In other words, all the way through the text, we'll try to identify a king, but relate it to the king that's reigning at the same time in the uh, opposing kingdom, if you will. And so Amaziah, he was uh, 
by the way, his name means his help is Yah. He has another name too, Uzziah. You'll find uh, in the book of Isaiah, he speaks, he uses his other name. Uh, Azariah means my, uh, my help is Yah or Yahweh. Um, his other name, Uzziah, means my strength is Yahweh. Doesn't show up in the transliterations, but that's, both names are in a sense, in the, especially in the Hebrew, essentially equivalent. So he was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 20 and 9 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehodan of Jerusalem. And so he's fairly young, 25 years old, when he became king. And he rules a long time, about 29 years. And uh, much of this time, uh, his son, Azariah's reign, will overlap with his own. They'll overlap for some reasons you'll see to, uh, when we get to it. And he did that was, was, that was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like David his father. We're going to find that's a very frequent echo of the southern kingdom. They don't do too badly, but they don't do what uh, everything they should. So he did that what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did much that was good, in other words. Yet not like David his father, he did according to all the things as Joash his father did. Howbeit the high places were not taken away, as yet the people did sacrifice and burnt incense in the high places. And so this is part of the problem. On the one hand, they, these uh, kings will, uh, would encourage some proper worship on the one hand, and yet they didn't get rid of the evil places. See, when you hear about these tribes being, or these people being uh, idolaters, it's not like they didn't worship God. They just included all their other gods in the mix. And that still offends God. God does not want to be number one on a list of ten. He wants to be number one on a list of one. And uh, we need to get that across. Now, when you hear about these high places, these were elevations that were set aside for pagan worship. Each contained altars of various kinds for various uh, pagan idols. And sometimes the Hebrews also would set aside a high place for worship of the Lord and would ordain local priests. Now, this was in direct violation of the Torah which insisted upon a single center for worship, namely Jerusalem. And uh, secondly, uh, on a priesthood that's staffed by descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. It's expressed in the Torah. When they don't do that, they're not following directions. And one thing we should get across to ourselves as we go through the Bible from end to end, God means what he says and says what he means. And God is very specific in, as to... Uh, uh, what he expects. That's one of the reasons the book of Leviticus is one of the most important books in the Bible. It's the only book in the Bible on holiness. And it's often uh, 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 not studied or not understood because it, it takes some... It's not a book you just read. You really need to study it. But God is very, very specific. And, and every and every detail there is for our learning. In Romans 15.4, Paul points that out. That whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning. And uh, so forth. Uh, okay, so getting verse 5. It came to pass, as soon as the kingdom was confirmed in his hand, he slew his servants, which had slain the king his father. And the children of the murderers he slew not, according to that which is written in the book of the law of Moses, wherein the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, nor the children to be put to death for the fathers, for every man shall be put to death for his own sin. So this, in Deuteronomy 24, 16, uh, um, is you know is is uh, quite explicit about that. Now, it's interesting the very fact that we have a citation here in this book uh, from the Law of Moses is evidence that Deuteronomy is not a late composition, as some of the liberal, so-called liberal um, uh, uh, critics uh, try to uh, maintain. That's just not true. It obviously was old e at, even at this time. 
so forth. Okay, verse 7, And he slew of Edom in the Valley of Salt 10,000, and took Selah by war, and called the name of it Joktil to this day. Now, um, this war with Edom that's underway here is more fully described in Second Chronicles 25, for those that want to get into more background. And it was an unprovoked uh, uh, act of war on Edom, showing somewhat uh, Amaziah's arrogance and cruelty, if you will. And it was just one more step in in Judah's um, downward um, prog- uh, progression to her destruction. But uh, one of the things that he does that's uh, a bad scene is that he takes the gods that he picks up from Edom to Jerusalem, and he worships them there. And that's all in Second Chronicles 25. And... Uh, Let's see, Edom had it revolted from the Judean control during the reign of Jehoram, and uh, he wanted to regain the control of, uh, of Edom because it gave access to, uh, to Judah of the southern trade routes. And so uh, he, it speaks of Selah here, which the uh, name Joktil by Amaziah, but it's later named Petra, and uh, stronghold of the city of Edom. It's one of the things that's carved out of a rock. It's one of the must-see things, if you get a chance to, in Israel. It's on the Jordan side, of course, but... It's worth doing, uh, because, not only because of its historic, it's, it's an incredible place to visit, very historically relevant, but even perhaps more important, it's prophetically relevant. And if you want to know more about that, we have a briefing pack called uh, the, uh, the Next Holocaust and the Refuge in Edom, which deals with Petra or Selah, as it's called here, uh, in terms of its uh, prophetic future. But moving along, then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, who, uh, the, the son of Jehoaz, uh, the son of Jehu, the king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. His, this arrogance that he has uh, is going to get him in trouble with the northern kingdom, partly because of the uh, his worship of Edomite, Edomite gods. He's going to get uh, God is going to judge him, and so he's challenging the northern kingdom to a war, um, which incident had just recently uh, suffered defeats from the from Hazazel, the the um, uh, what we would call the Syrians or Ar- the Arameans. So Jehoash, the king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give thy daughter to my son to wife. And there passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon that trod down the thistle. He's saying, What on earth is that all about? It's, he's dealing in sort of a riddle or a parable. See, he's, he's, the, the Israel, the northern king, uh, king is responding um, uh, as a warning to Amaziah, the, the, the uh, the thistle and cedars were common in Lebanon, but here Amaziah is the thistle and Jehoash is the cedar. And as a wild beast could easily squash a thistle, so anyone can easily defeat Judah, is what he's implying by this little rhetoric here. And uh, thou hast indeed smitten Edom, and thine heart hath lifted thee up. Glory of this, and tarry at home. For why shouldest thou meddle to thy hurt, that thou shouldest fall, even thou and Judah with thee? In other words, he's saying, you just beat, you know, you just conquered Edom, be satisfied with that, glory in it, but stay at home. Don't bite off something you can't chew is, in effect, the flavor of this. But the problem is, is that Amaziah's hurt, the pride was hurt, and uh, so his he's feelings are hurt, so he's, uh, uh, he's committing himself even more strongly to war. It's probably, all this is being probably orchestrated by God, who is anxious to see Amaziah cut down because of his embracing these Edomite idols. He brought those back to Jerusalem and so forth. So uh, it's interesting, the the writer of the text 
it constantly selects things so as to make his point, the key theme here, all the way through here, isn't how powerful these kings were in, tim, tim, in terms of their conquests or their buildings, all that sort of stuff, the way we usually measure maybe a, the reign of a king. It's measured in spiritual terms. And uh, so Amaziah is going to get get the... Uh, it's going to, get, going to be in trouble. He says, Therefore, the Joash, the king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, the king of Judah, looked one another in the face, as they say, at Beth Shemesh, which belongeth to Judah. And Judah was put to the worse before Israel, and they fled every man to their tents. And uh, so obviously that was Amaziah, part of his coming down. So Joash, the king of Israel, took Amaziah, the king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, Beth Shemesh and came to Jerusalem and broke, broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim unto the corner gate, 400 cubits. This is one of the places in Scripture where the northern kingdom actually attacks the southern kingdom and actually attacks Ju- uh, Jerusalem. And uh, he's, uh, he broke down about 600 feet of the city wall in Jerusalem. And he took all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord, uh-oh, and in the treasures... Uh, of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. So this is sort of surprising. This is one of those places where even though the northern kingdom is not in good shape with respect to God, God still uses them to to uh, to uh, get the attention of the southern kingdom here. And, and they get one of these summary verses then in verse 50. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, which he did, and his might, and how he fought with Amaziah, the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles, the kings of Israel? Indeed they are, of course. And, and uh, so... Now, apparently, when Amaziah was taken prisoner, the, uh, his, his son, Azariah, began to reign in, as Judah's king in Jerusalem. And so that's one of the reasons, trying to lay out the chronology of kings gets very complicated because they often overlap. And here's one of the many places where they do. Now, this mentions the death here, applies the death here of, of uh, Joash in verse 15. It's the second mention of Joash's death. You may, you may recall that echoes from chapter 13. It seems to be added here because of the unusual situation that existed when Amaziah was being held prisoner. And uh, so when Joash dies, Amaziah will be released and returned to Judah. And, and uh, Joash's successor uh, was, uh, was his son, Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II is a very, very key player in the, in the history of the northern kingdom. Verse 16. And Joash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his stead. This is Jeroboam the second. Remember, the northern kingdom got its start under Jeroboam the first when he rebelled against Rehoboam. But um, this guy is named after him. He would be identified, if, it, if uh, denotated with Jeroboam the second. And, and, and he's going to end up being a very, very powerful king and uh, lead the northern kingdom to tremendous material prosperity which does nothing more than highlight their spiritual bankruptcy, as we shall see. And Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, lived after the death of Joash, the son of Joash, uh, king of Israel, uh, 15 years. And the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles, uh, uh, and uh, so forth. Now, let's see. Um, now, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, and they uh, sent after him to Lachish and slew him there. And uh, so... We don't know who actually was in the conspiracy, but in any case, uh, uh, he was trying to fly, flee the country if his enemies had not caught up with him first. And uh, they brought him on horses, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. That's the royal section, if you will, the ancient city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, which was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. 
Now, they'd overlap while Amaziah was a prisoner and so forth, but Azariah's still only 16, but that's not, not a young age in that culture. This is, I mean, it's not as young as it would seem in our culture, of course. But, uh, and he built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. The, the restoration of Elath on the coast of uh, the Gulf of Aqaba is probably mentioned here because it's one of his most significant achievements. More information on Azariah will be given in the first seven verses of the chapter 15 when we get there. But uh, but we get this editorial comment. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel a sin. Here's a, a, a reflexive remark back to the original Jeroboam that started the northern kingdom. In other words, he started this idolatry. And like most of the virtually all the kings that succeed him, not just in his dynasty. We're going to talk, you know, about four or five, six dynasties here before long. He said that, that the succeeding kings, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what offended God. Because they didn't depart from the cultural tradition that Jeroboam started, one of idolatry. And uh, he restored the coast of Israel from entering of Hamath under the sea of the plain, according to the word of God. Israel, which he spake by the hand of a servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-hefer. Now, here is an interesting um, uh, reference to the Jonah that you and I know, interestingly enough. This territorial expansion was prophesied by Jonah, it says here. It's not recorded anywhere else in the Scripture, uh, it's, but, it, but it helps date Jonah himself because we know what time the prophecy was given here because it's recorded here. And so this is the same Jonah that traveled to Nineveh, and we'll talk about him a little bit further. We're going to summarize three key prophets, Jonah, Amos, and Hosea, at the end of this uh, chapter. But uh, I, think it's, uh, I think it's important to back up a little bit and give you some background about Jeroboam II, because he's a very, very key player. He was the fourth in the Jehu's line. Uh, he, um, the Old Testament doesn't say much about him, actually, passing rather quickly over him here for verses from 23 to 29, but in a brief mention in Chronicles chapter 5, First Chronicles chapter 5. But we know from archaeology that Jeroboam II was a very vital and very aggressive ruler. And his, the later reign of Jeroboam II ushers in a time of exploding prosperity for Israel. Um, he had destroyed the uh, military power of Syria and allowed him to expand his kingdom all the way to Damascus, uh, even taking over the capital of, uh, of Aram, uh, as it was called in those days, Damascus. And, uh, and so because he that, took advantage of all the, uh, the trade routes then, that made the northern kingdom rich. They were very, very wealthy. But the concentration of wealth also brings corruption. Heavier and heavier taxes uh, were laid on the workers. The wealthy became land-hungry, and they squeezed out the small farmers, building great estates. Most of the poor were forced to sell themselves uh, and, and raise their families as bond servants on the very lands that they previously owned. Even small merchants were corrupted, um, cheating with the way they weighted uh, their weights and measures. Um, and uh, this is all accelerated by the corruption of the justice system, where the, the judges took bribes from the rich, and, and this increasingly put oppression on the poor. All this comes up in great pain and suffering in, in, the, in the indictments of the prophets, all three of them, uh, well, especially uh, Amos and Hosea, but Jonah also. And uh, there's no sense of responsibility to the poor. And all of this, uh, the, uh, Amos hurls an angry charge. These people are willing to sell the needy for a pair of sandals. It was just uh, just injustice everywhere. And uh, in other words, luxury footwear meant more to them than the suffering of a fellow human being. And so religiously, economically, politically, they became an unjust society. 
In 2 Kings 17, when we get there, there's a couple of verses, 13, 14, somewhere. Let me just give it to you. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all the prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with my the entire law I commanded your fathers to obey that I delivered you through my servants, the prophets. But they wouldn't listen. So uh, the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up nor left nor any helper to Israel. In verse 27, okay. Um, and the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. We're going to s- discover that the Lord gets to the same point a hundred years later with the southern kingdom. But he doesn't blot them out because of his promise to David. But the northern kingdom didn't have that promise, so he's, you know, that was a commitment to Judah. But let's move on here. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did in his might, how he warred and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah for Israel, are they not written in the book of Chronicles, the kings of Israel? So here we have, uh, you know, that wrap-up kind of verse. Um, I might point out that when you take the territory that uh, Jeroboam uh, recovered and uh, it made Israel the largest country on the eastern Mediterranean seacoast, and when you take the prosperity of the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom together, they approximate what Solomon had. They, they, together they had, although uh, the, the southern kingdom is about a third the size of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is much, much larger. I didn't get time to put a map in the slides. I probably should have. Now, one reason Jeroboam II was so successful is because Damascus had been weakened by attacks from further east, namely the Assyrians. Don't confuse the Assyrians with Aram, which we call Syria typically. Sometimes even the Bible will call it Syria. Don't confuse Syria with Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were already starting to put heat on Aram, and that's why uh, Jeroboam was uh, able to take advantage of that. And uh, he was a very his his father had been a very very shrewd military strategist, and so was he. Apparently, in, inherited those abilities. And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel. And Zechariah, his son, reigned in his stead. And I might mention, by the way, it's in Jeroboam's second reign that we find the prophets Amos and Hosea ministering in Israel. Both Amos and Hosea came from the southern kingdom, but were sent by God to the northern kingdom to give them, to give them God's message. And so their messages also give us further insight into the reign, what the conditions were like in the uh, under the reign of Jeroboam and so forth. In fact, uh, this is probably a good time to just take a look at the prophets uh, that went to the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom had four up till now. There's going to be four more coming. We'll talk. We'll summarize them later. But it's these three, Jonah, Amos, and Hosea, that are in focus in the time that we're looking at right now. Now, Jonah is widely misunderstood. We all know about Jonah. He was called to go to Nineveh, and uh, he was uh, very reluctant to go because he was a patriot. Many people don't understand his mindset. And uh, he was uh, uh, he was a patriot, and that's why he was reluctant. If you look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, it explains that Jonah was afraid that the people of Nineveh, Nineveh might heed him and repent. And he didn't want him to repent. He wanted God to wipe him out because he knew that it was ultimately Nineveh was not only an enemy of Israel, but he also knew they would ultimately be the instrument of their undoing, which they were ultimately. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And so he, he, he didn't... Uh, 
you know, you know the story. He got, he got told him to go there, and he he went as fast as far away as he could in the other direction until God explained it to, to him a little more clearly. And then he, uh, when he finally does go there, he goes there with a reluctant message. You know, forty days and you get yours. And uh, uh, but the the amazing thing, of course, is that they did repent. And when they do repent, Jonah is in a big pout. You wonder, what's chapter 4 for? It's a great story. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, you get to the fourth chapter. What's it there for? Job is pouting. He's upset. He didn't want him repenting. Now, he's discouraged, and he's, you know, he's on a slump on a hill overlooking the city and so forth. If you're going to understand Jonah's ministry, you need to see his entire adventure as God's object lesson. Not to Nineveh, to Israel. He is showing them that if they repent, that um, they could be saved. See, the whole point of the Nineveh story is that they repented. They did it on spec, by the way. There was no promise. Jonah didn't give me promise. Hey, if you repent, God's going to forgive you. I mean, he's going to uh, save, uh, uh, deliver you. They did it on spec, but they did. They did repent, and God had decreed 40 days, and they, they were ground zero. And in those 40 days, the king went down, they repent, and God spares them. The point, it's a lesson to the northern kingdom. Pay attention, guys. Northern kingdom had 200 years and blew it. Nineveh had 40 days and, 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 and repented. So, and so, but despite the example of Nineveh, the people of Israel just wouldn't respond to the prophets. And it was their failure to repent that made judgment inevitable. Let's talk a little bit about Amos. Here's a guy that most, uh, most commentators feel is very poor. He was he raised sycamore figs, which was which was not a, a, a high call, economic calling. But we don't know that he might not have been a landowner doing that because he's from Judah, not from the northern kingdom. But he's generally viewed as a poor. Uh, but he certainly has a burden for the poor as he goes to the northern kingdom. He he may have been just a, a, a you know a caretaker of figs and 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 caring for sheep and all that sort of thing. And uh, so. He was not really in the office of a prophet, nor was he uh, the son of a prophet. He just responded to God's call. And he obviously went up north. He probably visited Bethel and Dan, saw the calves and all that. He probably walked past the great houses and saw the luxury goods on the one hand uh, in stores, outside of which the poor were uh, crouched. He must have noticed the merchants mixing chaff with the wheat that they were selling, slyly using dishonest weights and the rest of it. And he was angered by the heartlessness and the materialism. So he boldly identifies the sins for which God was about to judge the northern kingdom. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Musler, teaching through the book of 2 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. His Word.